Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. You have to learn how to compress decades into days. So you take people who have decades of experience and just talk to them. And you'll learn what they did in 20, 30 years in 20 or 30 minutes. Welcome back to the Duet Partner Podcast. I'm your guest host, Ariel Hobner. Thank you for being here at Duet Partner where we take care of the business side of things so music teachers can go about the work of changing the world one student at a time. In this episode, I'm lucky enough to sit down with Avi Friedlander. Mr. Friedlander is currently the director of the Barston Suzuki Center at the Music Institute of Chicago, where he has a full studio of thriving young cellists. He is a Suzuki teacher trainer and brings his depth, artistry, and brilliant pedagogical mind to so many lucky musicians. I loved our conversation together. We talk about the importance of finding skillful mentors who can condense decades into days, remembering to teach with a child in mind, and developing structures and systems that support your teaching and life. I know you're going to love this conversation as much as I loved recording it. I always like to start off with the question um, what your musical background from your childhood was like. So how did you find the cello? How did you find Suzuki? Oh, childhood. <laughs> I'll be 44 next month and, and gonna think back quite a bit. I'm just joking. Um, I have three siblings and we all played an instrument. It wasn't a choice. It was just the rule in the house was one instrument when you were a kid. So um, I started at three on cello. Both my brothers and sisters started on violin. Who knows what the real story is? My mom said my fingers were too fat to play violin. Who knows? I mean, it could have been that maybe there were too many violinists in the house and she was like, here, you need to use this thing. Um, both my brothers were Suzuki violinists. They were, they're older than I am. And then there wasn't a Suzuki cellist that was close by. This is my understanding that my mom wanted me to study with, so I studied with somebody in the Pittsburgh Symphony um, named Lauren Scott Mallory, who was a starker uh, student and assistant at Indiana University and then got the job in, in Pittsburgh. And she had a few students, but she started me at three or three and a half. So, I mean, she must have figured out how to yeah. <laughs> teach, a, teach a little kid. Um, and so we all played music and it was, you know, looking back at it now, it's kind of funny because it was never a question about practicing. It was just, you practiced every day and you um, went to orchestra rehearsal and you, you know, did things. It's just what happened with music. Um, so we just did that. And my mom uh, would put on the radio and make us guess the composers of whoever was on the radio and when we were driving, it was always WQED, and you'd have to hear, is this Mozart or is this Beethoven? What's the difference? And this is what our car rides were. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what it was. And I studied with Lauren until um, she had two kids within a couple years. And then at that point, she stopped teaching. I think she only had like two or three students. And then I moved to somebody else named Gail Tchaikovsky, who I studied with for, I think, four years until she got in a serious relationship and I think got married and decided not to teach. <laughs> um, and she again only had like two or three students. She was in the symphony as well. And then this wonderful man named David Primo moved to town, who's the second chair of Pittsburgh Symphony now. 
Lawrence Scott Mallory had moved back into the section. He eventually got the second chair position, and then I studied with him in high school. Um, so it was all music all the time until I got really obsessed with sports. And then in high school, it was, I want to play ice hockey. How do I get good at ice hockey? And it was just training and figuring out how to play hockey. My goal was to be like the captain of the varsity team and all that stuff. So, and then it was sports and music. So was that a tricky balance? I mean, it seems like in high school, that's always the age where that kind of pull towards other interests happens. So how did you balance that out? Yeah, I would say the schoolwork took a second, <laughs> took a backseat. Uh, anybody who's listening, don't make that the, your priority. But I was really um, good at short-term memory and being able to just look at the notes a half an hour before a test, memorize everything, walk in and do well on the test. Not the best way of learning. So I would, um, after school every day, I would go and I'd have hockey practices every evening and I'd have to play the cello before that. So it was cello and then maybe chess with friends. So I had this chess thing that I did with friends after school. And then hockey practice for two hours and we come home to the um, kind of craziness of the house and maybe schoolwork gets done and maybe it doesn't. Um, and then somehow you go to sleep and rinse and repeat. So as you're kind of finding that love of hockey, then you studied music in college. Uh, did you ever want to go to college with hockey? Yeah, I did actually. Um, it was a funny thing. It was just one of those things where you growing up and you're doing well in music. You know, mm -hmm. you get into young people's orchestra, then you get into the youth symphony, and then you do well in a couple competitions. And then it's just assumed that you're going into music. So people would just ask me when I was a freshman, you know, what do you want to do? It was like, oh, I want to be a music major. Sophomore year, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be a music major. Junior year, it's, what do you want to do? It's like, ah, I like hockey, but I, I want to be a music major. Then senior year, it was like, well, I don't think I'm going to get recruited anywhere, but I want to do music. Um, and I got asked to play hockey at some places for club hockey, not varsity, which is, you know, they have three tiers for varsity, and then they have... I mean, for um, D1, D2, D3 for college. And I got asked to play what's the next level down, you know, which is club, which is good, you know. Um, and then uh, just took a bunch of auditions for music, you know, three of them to be exact. And then randomly, last minute, my teacher was says, well, why don't you audition for University of Michigan? And it was probably January and the auditions were in April and it wasn't on my list. And I said, okay, sure. And so my oldest brother, Josh, drove me to Ann Arbor and we stayed in a Red Roof Inn. And, and uh, I took the audition and uh, I didn't even know who the cello teacher was, to be honest with you. I knew his name, but this is before the internet. So I, I didn't have like pictures of him. And I was totally talking to the wrong person in the room during the interview, thinking that that was my teacher and I was talking to the bass teacher. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things, you, nowadays it's a little bit easier. You can actually see pictures of people. Do you know what I mean? Yes, so yeah. much easier. Like, yeah. yes. <laughs> and, if, and if you know, the, so Stuart Sankey was the bass teacher who was a very small person. And then Anthony Elliott's a very tall person. Right. And I was talking to Stuart Sankey thinking that he was the cello teacher. And then it was this really big, really nice guy, very tall kept talking to me. I was like, why is the bass teacher talking? 
<laughs> I had them completely confused. Um, and I, I just, it was, was I was in high school. You don't, you don't know. I mean, the internet really has changed so many things. Yeah. <laughs> That's just one small example. And I just, you know, I was a high school kid. I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, um, so then I got in. And uh, when I went to Michigan, I was in the back of the worst orchestra there. And it was kind of a shock to me. And I, when I was at, in high school hockey, just to kind of tie back to what I'm about to say about the orchestra, I made it onto the varsity team my sophomore year, and I had never played hockey before. I just knew how to skate and to play roller mm-hmm. hockey with friends, but I'd never played an ice hockey game. And I was determined to be captain, which I got my senior year. But I had to like work really hard at it to, to get that. So when I got to Michigan, um, I was in the back of the worst orchestra, you know. And I was like, this is not acceptable. So then I just practiced nonstop. Mm-hmm. And I would go and uh, try to figure out what, why these people were better. Mm. You know, and I started writing down things. I was like, oh, this person does this exercise. Oh, this person does this. I started keeping like a diary of things because it's the same thing as hockey. There's techniques that are in it. Mm. And once you master the techniques, then you get the baseline of what your ability can be. So I did that for four years and then I was principal of the top orchestra my senior year. So, so did you ask other people, like, what do you do? Or did you listen at their practice room doors? Or like, how did you ascertain what they were doing that you weren't doing? So it was more like, uh, writing down the exercises from my teacher, asking the students in the other studio what their teacher was telling them. Okay. And then um, every my brother went to Cleveland Institute of Music. So then whenever I visited him, I would ask the cello students there, what is your teacher working with you on? And, you know, it was Steve Gaber, Richard Aaron, and Alan Harris. And so I would just start writing down stuff and go home and practice it. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, so I mean, it's just what I did, and um, it that's kind of how I transformed in my teaching. But that's what I did as a player, and then uh, I stayed there for my masters because I love Mr. Elliot. He's just I can't not call him Mr. Elliot, even though we teach at the same place together. Mm-hmm. Um, such an, an inspiration as a person, and, and you know, just everything that he does. Then I got into New World Symphony and played down there. And then I was dating my girlfriend long distance, who's my wife, and she was at Cleveland Institute of Music. So then I went back to school for post-grad at Cleveland. Okay. And that's kind of how it all circled around. So in all of this, you, you were playing it in New World Symphony and then um, back to Cleveland. How did you find your way to teaching um, at all? And then um, to Suzuki teaching? Um, so my brothers are both uh, orchestral musician, musicians my one is still my other brother turned into a school he was a conductor and a school teacher now um, but it was just this thing where when you're an undergrad and your older brothers are a couple years older than you they're like you have to take orchestra auditions this is what you have to do you have to practice your excerpts you have to do this so for six years I did an orchestra <laughs> Uh, study just memorizing every audition repertoire that there was and I kept trying to do other degrees because I didn't wasn't really sure that's what I wanted to do so I started I looked into doing a business degree in Michigan and then I realized that I had to take a lot of math classes <laughs> so, so then I said I'm not doing that 
So then when I went to my master's, I said, oh, I want to teach. That's what I want to do. And so I got into the education department with Bob Culver at Michigan. And then I, after I realized I had to conduct with that and did that for a semester, I said, no, I don't want to do that. But I wanted to teach. I've always had this like thing of like telling people what to do. Um, so, and then uh, when I went back to school at Cleveland, uh, my first year there, I started teaching at a school there. Um, okay. I wasn't a Suzuki teacher yet, but I was teaching lessons and I was like, I really like this. Mm. So then after my first year or second, two years in Cleveland, I applied for a job teaching at a university and I got it. And mm. it was, um, teaching at a community division and then teaching the college students. And when I was doing that, I realized as part of my job, I had to start people. And I had no idea, you know, I was reading all the books and how to begin people and putting numbers of, above notes and dots and anything you could do to figure out, yes. you know, bow holes. I'm like, well, just grip it. Now move it and do this. And then I, you know, and then my wife, who's brilliant and was raised as a Suzuki student, I said, why don't you go get Suzuki trained? And then I was like, what is that? What are you and then she said, oh, let's look it up. And we found there was one in Pittsburgh. And I didn't know who this Pam Devonport person was. You know, she's like, I, so we both went and did book one there. And as you know, Pam's amazing. I met Pam. She's brilliant. She's kind. Um, she's sharing. And she's a great uh, musician. And I was just inspired. And two weeks later, I called my university and said, I quit. And said, I want to be a Suzuki teacher. So then I um, um, was outside of Chicago. So the options for trainers in town were Gilda and Tanya. And I knew Tanya quite well because I studied with her at Metamount when I was younger. Okay. And so then I called and nagged her and until she finally said, okay, okay. Then I, then I did this, um, it's like, it was like a night school thing at DePaul University. Back then they called it like an apprentice training or not, not an official long-term because it wasn't a long-term program. And did Suzuki 1A and 1B and went through it. And then I almost quit doing the training uh, after book six because I was like, oh, I know how to teach the upper rep. I don't need to do anymore. Um, and then this man named David Hoppy, who was in the class with me, there were three people in the class. It was myself, David Hoppy, and Chris Fiore. Um, it might've been one other person, a girl named Maria, I think might've still been at, at the, in it at that point. And David, who's older than me, I think he's maybe 15 years older than me, said, you're going to regret it if you don't finish it off. And, you know, it was one of those things where I can think back to times where people have said things to me that just stuck in my mind forever. For some reason, I went home and I was like, yeah, I should probably keep going. And I'm so glad I did because it changed like the course of my life doing that. Yeah. So then I got through all 10 books and then I'd said, oh, I want to do more, Tanya. I got to do all of her etudes, all the concertos. And I just spent years just studying everything that I could learn from her because she's Brilliant. Yeah. So did you have like, was it a class or was it just like private lessons? What did you, I shouldn't do this. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's like you have lessons when you're in college and then like, if you want to like, are you my mentor? I don't know. Yeah. I think that's just a weird thing I have in yeah. my head. 
So what did your study with her beyond book 10 look like? Um, well, I finished the book 10 and then she has this project called Technique is Finite. Mm -hmm. And you have to trace all the techniques through all the different books. And then she was writing, starting to write her cello playing is easy course. And so Chris and I were kind of part of that guinea pig group. Okay. And when she got her first copy of the books in the, in the front of it, I probably have it over there on the ground, my pile of music. She writes, I see future trainer material in you, which I was like, what is that saying? Like I could do what you do. And so then it was one of those things without her, I would not be doing anything that I'm doing now. And so she just kind of took me under her wing and I said, okay, I want to study this. How do I do it? And she was like, I, I could put a course together. I was like, great, I can get people to do it. So I would just call people and say, let's do this course. And then I had a group of people that we ended up starting to do stuff. And I would just call people and like, let's, come on, you got to do this with her. <laughs> and so then um, we would, we'd have certain courses that she, all the subjects, all the, you know, whatever pieces you can think about. I'm done with her. And then when I couldn't get a group together, I would just study privately with her. Mm. Like, okay, I want to learn how to teach Elgar. Show me. Yeah. And it was just, I was basically teaching privately in order to study with her. Like, <laughs> I was just, I got to just, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to figure out how to do this. It was like hockey. How do you get good at something? Well, you have to study with the best. And there was this book, uh, there's lots of books by Warren Buffett, but one of them, there was a quote in there that stuck in my mind, which was, you have to learn how to compress decades into days. Decades into days. So you take people who have decades of experience and just talk to them. Mm. And you'll learn what they did in 20, 30 years in 20 or 30 minutes. You just have to be willing to ask them and be, be nice, you know, mm -hmm. be sincere. Don't be, you know, fake about it. And then give them credit. I always give them credit. Mm. All, I mean, you know this. I always yes. say, this is where I got it from. Because I don't try to pawn it off like it's my own. Yes. Yeah. I think you're brilliant at doing that in a way that's all about respecting this person rather than like, oh, I studied with this person. You know, there's, I feel like there's such a, a difference between I must credit. This is the person who came up with it. Um, and yes, you always do that. I'm always amazed at how you remember the threads. <laughs> this yeah. came from this person. Because I remember it like it's because when people have that kind of impact on your life, you don't forget it. Like after I finished with Tanya, then um, I remember her saying, you know, you need to go and kind of do your own thing for a while, you know, get another perspective. And so then I uh, went to Gilda and said, hey, I, I want to do all the books with you. How do I do it? And she's like, well, you can do it one on one, but it'll be very expensive. It'll be cheaper if you get more people to do it. So then I called some friends and said, let's do it. And that's how that happened. And then some of that group ended up going. And did the, we did the same thing with Irene Sharp. And we studied with Irene Sharp for a few years. And then Rick Mooney. And that's kind of how I power numbers. So you just get a cohort and say, hey, come do this with me. Kind of. I mean, you know. It was before online stuff, so you had mm -hmm. to travel. Right. Uh, we would travel to before kids for me also, or a kid for me, go to Chicago and then fly out to San Francisco, and then I would bring Rick to me and just get other people in the area mm. to train with him. So. I see. So it seems like there's this thread. Um, the the series um, for this 
podcast title is what I wish I'd known when I started teaching. And I feel like you have a brilliant mind for like cataloging and keeping track of things. Um, And I see it back. Like when you're like, I want to be the captain of my varsity team or in college when you wanted to become like, this is unacceptable. Where do you think that came from this sense of like, Oh, I see I'm here and I want to be there. All I have to do to get there is work hard. Like, where did that, I feel like that is not innate for everyone. How did you come to know that? I mean, probably my mom, you know, my mom was a very hard worker and she just, anything that she wanted to do or she thought that we could do, she was like, just work hard and do it. That was just always her answer. Uh, you know, <laughs> things like, oh, I want to do this. She's like, well, God gave you two feet. Go out and do it. You know, walk there, do it, figure it out. That was like always her response. <laughs> Just go do it. Don't make any excuses for it. And so it was like this, and she would like lead with example because she would work and then she would leave work to pick us up from school, drive us home and then go back to work and then come home and drive us all the lessons and drive us all the hockey practices or wherever we had to go. And it was just, so that was probably the first thing. And I had a great coach in college or in high school, uh, Doug Benneman, who, you know, like chose me to be the captain my senior year and like kind of took me under his wing a little bit and showed me like how to lead and how to do certain things. Like a lot of responsibility I I took it on and he's like leading is not just about being a good player. It's about getting people to believe in you, getting people to want to follow with you and join you and, you know, not being about I, being about we, that kind of, you know, like how coaches do. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Mr. Elliot, I remember, I remember getting up to perform in a, in a uh, sophomore year in a string departmental and I didn't iron my shirt and he is the nicest man ever. If you've met him, he is the nicest person ever. And he pulled me aside. He said, it was great playing, but I don't care about the playing. You didn't iron your shirt. He's like, you have to represent more than just the music. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and, and then like he told me about his, like we had talks about like how he used to have to like go work in construction fields to make money, take the bus in order to take lessons and the things that he had to go through. And I'm like, got to work a little harder, you know, got to do that kind of thing. And then when I came across Tanya, who is a worker and there's like, class from 8 to 11 a.m., class from 8 to 11 p.m., doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and she's up at 5 in the morning, you know, working out before all that. And you get to book 10, and you have to do this uh, exercise, technique is finite. And you have to know all the techniques through through all the books, and all of a sudden it clicked. Oh, it's just like sports. You have to know the techniques. Mm. Where do they start? Where do they come from? And then I had all of my notebooks from college all my notes from like Richard and Hans and Gaber and Ellie they're all listed I had just I mean I have them in my closet probably still and I would just start organizing them say oh here's this technique where does this belong oh here's this and then then every time you go and you learn something new like oh where can I put this in Uh and you try it out with your students like oh that worked oh that did not work (laughs) (laughs) not gonna do that ever again 
Uh, and you just figure it out and you create your own kind of way piggybacked on what you've learned from other people. That was kind of my journey through it. So it sounds like you've also always had uh, a habit of writing things down. Because mm. not if I feel like not all of my college studio mates took notes and lessons. I remember like, I wish that I had a, recorded them now, um, but it wasn't as accessible. But I would like spend a while after my lesson, like writing down everything I could remember. Mm -hmm. So that also seems like it's, you've written things down, but also revisited them. Yeah, but that was advice from Dave Primo mm -hmm. when I was a senior in, in high school, where he said, take every, every opportunity and remember what you do. And so like when I was a freshman, I played every gig, it's sophomore. It didn't matter. Conductors wanted me to play in the orchestra. I did it. You know, everything that you could do. Uh, and then I would, uh, my orchestra was at 10 a.m. My lesson was at 8 a.m. And between 9 and 10, I would write down the notes and practice what I did in my lesson. Mm -hmm. So then I'd remember it, you know. Mm -hmm. It just kind of, it just takes one person to say one thing. Yeah. Like, I remember this is, not on the topic of music, but it, I just, I remember um, Dick Connell was our, was our neighbor across the street growing up. And you know, you're a kid, you don't have awareness of what you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And I'm just out talking to him after school one day and he goes, you know what? You're not such a bad guy. I don't know why your mom says that. And I was like, it's like, what? She said, what? <laughs> <I'm awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it makes you think, you're like, oh, you know, those like one conversation here or there, you know, and to bring that back to teaching, I'm really, because those statements have made such an impact to me, I'm really aware of my influence on kids mm -hmm. and how little things that you say can influence them for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Is that part of, is that what part of what drew you to Suzuki? Oh, just, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's the environment, it's not just teaching the instrument. Mm. You know, it's, it's trying to find uh, a good impact on society, not just you know, creating a cellist. Right, right. So if a brand new teacher or a teacher who's been teaching for a few years um, came to you and said, help, <laughs> like, I don't, I can't keep track. Where would you direct them to go first? Like, how would they start? creating the systems and um, careful methodology that you have? Well, first you should study with somebody who um, thinks like you and somebody that doesn't think like you. Not mm -hmm. just somebody that thinks, um, somebody who's more linear in thinking maybe than somebody who's not. Um, but go and study with somebody who's done it for years and already has, like I said, compressing decades into days. And then once you get that, um, find your own, like Suzuki said, he was the only person that taught Suzuki. I teach the Friedlander Suzuki method. Don't be afraid to do your own thing as long as it is uh, reasonable and logical. You know, putting somebody in Haydn D major second movement when they're in book five which I came across last week, is not a great idea. That doesn't make sense pedagogically. This kid, a student played for me and said, I said, what are you working on? A Vivaldi Sonata and Haydn D. 
And I said, hide and D? He said, yeah, hide and D, second movement. He said, he started playing. I was like, that wouldn't be somebody that I would be going taking advice from, mm. right? Yeah. But then if you look at somebody like Pam or Nancy Hare or Rick or Sally Gross or people that, or Tanya or any of the, the great teachers that are out there, um, and you see success in their students, but not just success, but admiration, mm. then that's the person you want to learn from. Yeah. And then you can put together your own things. You might say, okay, this is how this person does, but I don't agree with that, but I like this. And you just kind of blend them together. Mm. When I decided I wanted to be a, t a trainer, I had all these manuals from people, you know? And then I thought to myself, well, they had to sit down and create their own manuals. I should write my own. And so that's where I just sat before I was a trainer and wrote my own manuals. I said, I need to organize my own. They spent the time to do it. I should do the same thing. Hmm. So I spent a few years just writing them down. So even if you weren't on the way to becoming a teacher trainer, just the process of sitting down, like writing out, okay, this is where I like to do this. And this is um, like connecting the threads for yourself. Absolutely. Or if you're a kid that comes to you and says, I want to play this piece. Here's an example. Brahmsy minor. Mm. That's like a cello piece. All I wanted to do my, my sophomore year in high school was play Brahmsy minor. You know, <laughs> I listened to Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe every day. I was yes. just like, and so if I want to teach somebody Brahmsy minor and I haven't taught it before, there's no reason why I can't teach it, but I have to study it first to make sure I know it. So I'll go through, I'll put my Boeings in there, things that I feel comfortable with. It doesn't mean they have to do it, just what I feel comfortable. I'll buy the Baron Writer. I'll buy the International. I'll go on YouTube and look up every single master class there is on Brahms E minor, because now there's everything on YouTube. I will research Brahms. I will write it down. I'll look at the piano part. I'll study the score. I'll listen to a couple recordings. And then I will be hopefully ready to teach it. And what I'll do is I'll create a teacher guide in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. So I'll have two parts. I'll have one that's clean for the student to look at, to get their bowie from, and one that's the teacher part, where I put all my markings, things to think about, ideas, concepts in there. I do that with every piece when I have a student come to me. Because mm -hmm. I don't feel like there's anything I shouldn't be able to teach. Mm -hmm. Maybe Prokofiev Symphony Concertante. I've done that once with a student. You know, maybe that one, because I actually didn't study that. So maybe that one, if somebody gets to that point when they're in middle school or high school, then I'd be fine <laughs> telling them to go study it with somebody else. But every other piece, Dvorak, Haydn, Shostakovich, Schumann. I had a student last night that wanted to play Schumann, and so we started it. Mm -hmm. He's already played Herbert Shallow Concerto and a bunch of other stuff. And, Luckily, I studied that for years, so I could just pick it up and start playing it. But next lesson, I'll have my part there with my markings in it. Mm. You know. So how long should a teacher kind of mark in like that study time? I mean, I think that I probably, depending on the student and my free time, I, anywhere between a half an hour, an hour a day, just studying what I have to teach. Um, if it's something new like Hungarian Rhapsody if I had never taught that before I may spend a half an hour to an hour a day for about a week or two before I actually teach it mm. and then I'll feel, and then I'll obviously I have to be able to play it and have it memorized right I mean I've played that one for years so I know that it's just an example right just an example but 
I had a kid um, uh, play. He actually, he won first prize in a competition recently, and it was those Bach four prelude and then another piece I had never heard of. And honestly, if you asked me what it was, I couldn't even tell you at this point. Um, but I had to go and find scores and study it before I could teach it to him. It took took me about a week or two of study time before I gave him his first lesson. Mm. But you're you're willing to do that as part of your own growth as a student says, hey, I want to learn this piece. And you say, OK, I'll learn it. I'll learn it first and then teach it to you. Absolutely. Otherwise, I won't teach it or mm -hmm. I shouldn't be teaching the student. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just the way it is. Yeah. For I me. think. Yeah, I think that's an, an important component. I wish someone had said to me starting out, like, you need to set aside this study time whether it's memorizing book one or book five or whatever you're teaching, or just making sure that you understand it um, thoroughly um, and can break it down for a kid. Yeah, a um, few things there. And don't only read about music, mm. read about sports, read about business, learn from people that have been great in other fields. Um, and like even things like taking naps, having energy uh -huh. um it's very funny but if my wife calls me between 2:40 and 3 she knows that she woke me up from a nap <laughs> it's every day between 2:40 and 3 this is my downtime because um it happened from watching a tedx on sleeping mm. and just the importance of that and then i read an einstein book where you know he took naps every day and i started noticing trends and i notice now that i'm better with my students if i take naps every day mm. um yeah just little things like that i i try to read a lot on different subjects that i think will help me uh, be a better teacher and then study scores mm. yeah i don't actually practice that much anymore my own material sure um, yeah yeah, I used to, when I played in a jazz band, I would have to practice for myself a lot. But now I end up, because I have uh, 30 or 35 students, and I think 15 are playing concertos, so I have to keep my my A game going. Yeah. Yeah. That's so many in concertos. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of just one other thing about Tony Elliott, is that, uh, or Mr. Elliott, he um, started teaching at 8, and he had already worked out and practiced for two hours before his lessons began. And I asked him about that my senior year, and he said that he wanted to be done at the end of his school day so he could spend time with his family and not have to be distracted. So he made the sacrifice of getting up at like five in the morning. Wow. So luckily having those types of role models. If I would have had a role model that was out like doing bad things, I could have been influenced in the wrong way. So... Just and very it's, fortunate. it sounds like your these role models, your mom and Mr. Elliot and um, Mr. Primo weren't, weren't ever complaining about the hard work either. It was just like, oh yeah, this is just what you do. No, and they wouldn't tell you about it unless you asked them about it. That was the other thing. Oh, it wasn't like they were bragging about it. They just, mm -hmm. just what they did, you know, that's really hard to instill on, on kids. <laughs> you know, um, and I think the way you do it is through example. If you're there for them and you're, don't, you're not acting tired and you're organized and you're just like with them 100%, I don't have email on my phone. I try not to get distracted when I'm teaching them. Mm -hmm. 
Reading a good book right now called Stolen Focus. Ooh. Have you heard that book? I have not. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, but it, it makes me think a little bit about um, being the challenges of our teaching now because the students, the kids have so many distractions. And it's also the importance of us teaching because if they sit and focus for 45 minutes a day on something that's not a screen, yeah. that's going to be very impactful for their lives. Yeah. Versus if you go over to somebody's house and there's four kids and they're all looking at iPads and they can't look you in the eye. Mm -hmm. Tell my kid every day when he goes, this is why I drop him off from school. It's like, when you say hi to that teacher, look her in the face and say hi. And you know this from book one, the focus at the beginning of the lessons. Mm -hmm. That's a lifelong skill. Yeah. Look, look you in the eye and count to ten. Yes. Oh, and it's so, again, um, I call focus the F word. <laughs> Like, don't say the F word because a kid has to learn that there are many steps and skills involved in focus. Mm -hmm. So it's like, instead of focus, can you look me in the eyes and count to 10 with me? Yeah, can course. you sit yeah. in your cello position or with your violin or whatever it is? And can you stay there for the whole song? Or mm -hmm. you have to teach these skills. Like you say that um, this, the focus has been stolen. So they don't even know what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Luckily, yeah. most of the kids that we get at age four or five that are beginners, most of them are not sitting in front of an iPad mm -hmm. at that age. So you have the opportunity to tell the parents how to do things and your experience about it mm -hmm. and say, okay, I want you to do this and this and this. And just so you know, you should be doing this at this time. Don't take them away from playtime to go and practice the cello, you mm -hmm. know? Make this your special time. Try to put the phone down when you're practicing with them. Try yes. not to talk and interrupt them while they're doing something. Like these things that they might not know about, but you know from experience. Mm -hmm. It's important. Yeah. What would you say? I feel like I am still years, years down the road, still learning about communicating to the parent. Mm. So when, when I'm with the kid, I feel like that's fine. But instructing, and the older I get, I think the less I feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, but to a young teacher who doesn't have kids, what what can they do to offer that advice or that, you know, this is where their expertise is without, <laughs> yeah. without so, being nervous? Yeah, and, you know, I used to think like that when I started because you maybe only taught for a year, but you've been playing it. What you have to know is you've been playing the cello for 15 or 16 at that point. Mm -hmm. And you know more than that person about playing the cello. Mm -hmm. Maybe not more about uh, teaching, but more about the instrument itself. And if you've been Suzuki trained, you know some information about how to teach the material. Um, that kind of confidence, I just think it's important. You can't really... You can train a mindset and confidence, but you have to first believe it in yourself that you can do this type of thing. You can, if you, if you, it's the whole uh, mindset thing. If you think you're going to be bad at something or you think you can't do something, well, then you won't be able to do it. Mm -hmm. so you, just have to, you just have to tell yourself that you can do it and don't be afraid of doing it. Show confidence. 
uh, when parents come to a lesson, is the room clean? Are you dressed professionally? Are you organized? Are you, you know, those types of things. I mean, now I wear a jeans and a flannel shirt, but when I started, I was dressed up for every single lesson, and I cleaned the room before they came in. And as you know, I was type A, 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 organized, because I wanted them to know I was professional about this and take me seriously. Mm -hmm. um, now that I've been doing it for a while, I can lay back a little bit. Right. <laughs> COVID has done that to us. Um, yeah, I think that's important. And then there's something that Rick said to me years ago, which was always do in the lesson what you expect them to do at home. And that was a big mistake that I did in my early teaching where I would tell a student and the parent, okay, just do this at home. But I wouldn't actually watch the parent do it with the kid so I didn't know that they were doing it the right way. At this point, not only do I have them do it with the kid in front of me, I tell them how to practice it basically in days or two days chunks. Mm -hmm. Do the first three measures on Monday and Tuesday. Don't try to do it all. Do the first six measures on Wednesday and Thursday. Mm -hmm. On Friday, so then they have a game plan. Mm -hmm. Versus going home, how do I do this? Right. Or they come back and they say, well, I played through it. <laughs> right, yeah. And then, you know, it, it's, it's so my son plays cello, I play cello, my wife plays cello. So if he has a problem, I can just pick up the cello and play it. Mm -hmm. If I wasn't a musician and he has a problem, how am I going to help him? I'll say, look, it's it's a one on the A and it's a, look at the dot right here and put your first finger and just press. And... So it's your teacher to, it's your job as a teacher to make sure that parent knows how to work with them. Mm. That's the triangle. Mm. You know, if you don't have that, you know, imagine a triangle missing a side, everything goes flying out of it. Yes. You've got to close that up and make sure it's, you know, really clean. So by treating yourself professionally, like, you know, like treating your space, you're giving the parents the message. I know what I'm doing. Like I yeah. have something valuable to offer. So if you went to um, a seminar on public speaking and they just told you how to public speak, but didn't give you any ideas how to do it yourself, you'd walk away from it being like, that was really great. But, um, how do I actually improve myself? Right. So if I went to a class, um, like I did with, with we had a, um, when we were, was it Lamaze class or something like that? When they, yeah. They give you actually exercises to practice at home and they walk you through it, mm. right? To show you to how to practice it. You know? When you have the parent in the room with you, if you don't show them how to practice it at home, You've got 30 minutes of time with them, right? What are they doing the other days of the week? Right. It kind of drives me a little bit nuts, to be honest with you, with some of the sports training that I go to, where they'll do stuff with on the ice. They don't tell you what to do at home. And luckily, I, I'm an, I, like, I've played hockey, so I can say, okay, we're going to do these drills on the off days, if you want. If you don't want, I'm not going to do them, mm. right? Or I'll go out and find a trainer or something like that. But most parents, it's just like up to the kid to go out and do stuff. And they're staying on ice for 20 minutes, just waiting for their drill and going, yeah, 
and it's, I think it's effective, but it's also the sink or swim method. It's like mm. you throw the, all the kids onto the fields, and the ones that are good mm. are good. But that's not how we teach in Suzuki. There's no sink or swim. It's everybody is able to do it, and you have to use all the ingredients of the environment in order mm. to make that possible. I wonder. I I often feel like. So the, the kids who don't want to practice, like the parents who just think my kid just should want to practice. And if they don't want to practice, they love playing for their family or they love playing for this. But I feel like I don't know of another thing that's quite like music in that you have a coach or a teacher for once a week. And then the rest of the time you do it by yourself, because even with sports, like you say, if you're doing extra drills outside of practice without a coach, that's more often than not considered extra rather than a prerequisite, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so I wonder what you, to me, that's like one of the challenges of teaching um, a musical instrument, but also one of the gifts in terms of curating focus mm -hmm. and teaching that ability to do something hard and that like, oh wait, I, I'm here, self-awareness, I wanna be there, here's what's in between, I'll make a plan to get there. So. I'm curious what you think about that idea. Like, do you, can you think of anything else that's kind of the same way as this musical journey? No. And you have to turn the, the parents into trainers or coaches basically at home and mm. make sure they know how to do it. So your job, the parent training is almost as important. I say it is as important as teaching the actual cello and the child. Um, so it's just to give sports as a reference, they have two types of sports. They have what they call travel and they have what they call house. Travel or for the kids who are really into it. So you get five or six days a week. So you don't really have the time to do it on your own because it's built into it that you practice every day. The kids that are in house league, they get two or three times a week. And they're the much more laid back kids. I think it's the same thing with instruments. You have the travel cellist and you have the house league cellist. <laughs> you know, yeah. the travel kids, they do it six or seven times a week. And they're the much more dedicated kids. The house league kids that play the cello, that's fine. They just have to know that they're house league. Mm. And it's going to take them four times as long. And they can't expect the same results as the travel kids. Mm. Right? It's just yeah. not possible. Right. If you do this three days a week, that's fine. But it's going to take you four years to get through book one. Mm. Maybe five. So just setting up those clear expectations from the get-go. Like this yeah. is... Expectations are the downfall of everything, or sorry, improper expectations yeah. in marriage, in relationships, in finances, in teaching, and anything, you know? Yeah. If I take $100 and put it in the stock market today and say, well, why isn't it $1,000 next week? Yeah. That's not proper expectations. <laughs> you know, if I have a five-year-old and I say, why aren't you playing Dvorak when you're 10? That's yeah. not proper, you know? Uh -huh. But if I give them the idea of, okay, if you work at this every day, there are general averages that happen, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. On average, if you start when you're in kindergarten and you practice every day the way that I ask you to, you know, as much as you can, then whatever grade you are in, you'll be around that in your book. Mm -hmm. Kindergarten, pre-twinkle, first grade, book one. Second grade, book two. On average, sometimes you start a little later, you things move around, but by the time you graduate high school, 
book 10 is a great expectation for you to have. Mm -hmm. So then it, you're also kind of putting it back into their hands. Like if you want to grow faster, you need to decide to maybe jump to the traveling team. <laughs> yes, but you have to be careful about that because practicing more doesn't necessarily mean that they get better. Yeah. You know, you can, like Suzuki said, you can water a plant as much as you want, <laughs> you know? So like if, like for instance, my kid is eight years old. He's a fine hockey player. He's a fine cellist. If I sat down and made him practice cello for six hours a day, it doesn't mean he's going to be mm -hmm. in book five next year. He's right. happy doing his 45 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I, I think there's, and there's also... I give reasonable expectations to the kids and I discuss with them the importance of fundamentals and I relate it to compound interests. Mm. I told you I was interested in business a while ago. <laughs> yeah. The, the way it works is at first you don't see the results, but the more you build on it, the greater the growth. And then what happens is one day all of a sudden, boom, mm. you realize you can play the cello. But you have to just keep working on the fundamentals, keep working on the ideas, the listening, the singing. And as a teacher, you have to keep that in mind when you're teaching the kids. Don't mm -hmm. be in a rush. Just keep on the journey. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things um, as a young teacher, or for me and folks I've talked to, is that there's no rush. Like, it, <laughs> you just water it every day a little bit. You can't overwater it. You can't. Uh, hurry the process it will take as long as it takes and what it we can do experience to understand yeah. that yeah time i guess is different right <laughs> the more time you have lived the the dif more different it feels hence the dilemma sure yeah. when you're 80 you understand that so the only way you can understand that when you're younger is to trust somebody who's been doing it for a while and again compress decades into days yeah. Find the people that have been doing it for 60 years and learn from them. Mm -hmm. Find the people that have, maybe not even 60 years, the people that have been doing it for 20 years, but have taught 40 kids a week for 20 years. You know, yeah. the people that have the hours built into their system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's not also how many years you've taught. It's also how many hours you've taught, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So in, as you're teaching young teachers, what is like a very common struggle that you hear that they are always asking about? I'm sure there are many, but is there like, one that like rises to the top? Playing wise or teaching wise? Oh, I love that. Let's do playing wise and teaching wise. Okay. Playing wise <laughs> is tension. So and it's always one of three places, thumbs, shoulders, neck or back, depending mm. on the person. I can't tell you how many times I've asked people, what bothers you? Always thumbs is first, then it's shoulders, then it's neck or back. Mm -hmm. So what do you think I focus on the most in their playing when they're young? <laughs> right? And you get it off, you get it movable, you get as many feeling things as you can to work on the concept of letting gravity take over versus pressure. Right? It's also a challenge because, you know, I play in a very nice cello. So I can just touch it and it makes a sound. You, you mm -hmm. play in a, a tense-sized cello, you're like, oh. Yes. Okay. So that's the, that's the biggest challenge. As a teacher, the biggest challenge is when you start off, you don't start off teaching at a university. Mm. Your first teaching job is not, you know, your first game is not in the NHL. Your first game is not in Major League Baseball and not in NFL. You've got to go through the, okay, I'm driving to people's houses. Oh, I'm teaching 
this person or I'm teaching this person that practices one day a week. You have to go, at least my experience, you have to go through that. Everybody does. And you have to kind of experience everything that there is before you can build up. And when you start a studio, you usually don't start with 30 people. You start with four, then you go to eight, then you go to 12, then you go to 20. Unless you've taken over a studio from somebody. Mm-hmm. That can be challenging. It's not the same type of field as walking in and getting a job for Accenture and you're working for 50 hours a week and making X amount of money. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, you, you end up being the business yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand there's a two-year process building up the studio and advertising and marketing. I'm always curious... Um, you seem like just always positive and always like very goal driven. And I'm curious how musicians in particular handle setbacks or disappointments. Have there been any times like that in your life where you weren't motivated by like getting to that point? Um, and how do you get yourself out of a slump? Maybe you're never in a slump. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I try to look on the positive side. Yeah, there are slumps. Everybody goes through slumps, but you just have to, it, depending on how you view things, I think that everything that you do is part of a greater plan. So the slumps are there to teach you for the better places, you know, for the more positive parts. So you have to use it as a learning experience. And it just depends how you look at it. Yeah, so you're in a slump right now. What are you going to do about it? I mean, that's not, that's not the most sympathetic viewpoint. It's just the way I've always been, you know, <laughs> it's just the way I am. It's just like, okay, I'm in a slump right now. What am I going to do? Uh, how do I get out of it instead of going deeper into it? So just kind of keeping it simple, like, well, what can you do? You know, I, yeah, I remember watching an, a Tony Robbins special on Netflix and there was this girl who got up and was talking about something that happened with her father, I don't know, son, I forget what it was. And Tony said, well, you know, if that person hadn't done that to you, you wouldn't be the person you are today. Mm-hmm. So you take that negative thing and use it as that's part of, you know, the greater plan of, you know, part of the plan of me to get to a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, slumps happen. It just depends on how you look at them. Mm-hmm. We all get, you know, I assume everybody gets down. Everybody has their ups and downs as part of life. You know, you just try to make every minute as good as you can. I remember um, one thing I'll, I'll kind of finish off with is that um, I do remember reading in one of those books, there's only one thing that we all have in common and that we all have the equal amount of, right? It's not money. It's not, you know, location. Everybody has the same amount of time in a day what you do with it is what matters and that's kind of how I've once I heard that I was like oh I might have been like 18 Mm. it's like okay gotta remember that you only have so much time in a day but everybody has the same amount yeah only thing that's equal well I I'd love to ask you one more question and that is just what do you think is one of the most important things that music teachers should keep in mind, or what should we be teaching? What does it mean to be a music teacher oh my gosh. today? I know, <laughs> just a small one. A small one. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you have to put it in perspective. These are kids. And what it was like when you were five years old or six year old. And really look at the lessons 
from the perspective of a five-year-old or a six-year-old. And if you can just spend a little time every week and try to remember what it's like to be a kid, it'll make teaching more enjoyable. I love yeah. that. Yeah, that's I, I think about that all the time. Like, what was I like when I was eight years old? And I went to this person's house for lessons. You know, like, what was going on in my house? And how did that impact me? And just think about that. Mm. I'm going to think about it today. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. It, it keeps you engaged. And it makes you think about those, those students as people, mm-hmm. not just as students. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Well, Avi, you're a treasure. Thank you so much you for taking. <laughs> Thank you. It's always, I'm always inspired after talking to you and I can't wait to see you soon. Yeah, let's catch up some more soon. Okay. I would love that. All right, have a good one. <laughs> you too. Bye, Avi. All right, all right, bye. Thanks for joining us on our episode today. I know that I came away inspired with so many notes. Please take a moment to share this episode with a friend maybe post about on social media or just give us a rating and review. This just helps us reach more musicians and teachers like you. Happy teaching.